This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, March 12, 2008. I'm Caleb Brown. The Civil War era still inspires spirited debate. Lending that time his eye for narrative, historian Walter A. McDougall takes another look in Throes of Democracy, the American Civil War era, 1829 to 1877. McDougall won the Pulitzer Prize for History in 1986. He is a professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania. We spoke yesterday. You said in the forum today that Tocqueville's account of his travels through the United States was one of the least authoritative. Describe what you meant by that. I think that was that's probably a pretty surprising comment. <laughs> yes, it was. It was certainly it was a surprise to me to learn it. Uh, but there has there's been a lot of excellent scholarship on on Tocqueville um, in recent decades, and um, I learned uh, quite a bit about how he reached his conclusions. Uh, he didn't travel uh, widely in the United States. He spent very little time in the South, and when he was there, he was ill uh, and didn't and didn't uh, get out much. Um, he he didn't uh, Tocqueville uh, refrained from ever visiting uh, religious seminaries, uh, military installations, colleges. Uh, the whole parts of American culture, uh, he just he never even was, was expo- exposed himself to, uh, and he also had uh, a penchant for jumping to conclusions. So if he would hear uh, some pithy remark or opinion by someone in New York, New York or Boston or Cincinnati, uh, he just immediately decided that that must be right, that must be true, and he he filed that away, and and it would. Uh, he might never challenge it unless someone else came up with a contrary opinion. Uh, so his methods were, were decidedly unscientific uh, uh, as compared, for instance, to Harriet Martineau, who was uh, essentially a sociologist and was very methodical about uh, her study uh, of America at, at the same period. You pointed to econometric analysis of President Jackson's impact, his policies' uh, impact on the economy. What do libertarians tend to misunderstand about Andrew Jackson? Um, nothing, uh, uh, if I'm just setting up a straw man to knock down. Uh, uh, but uh, and I, I'm certainly not going to, to uh, uh, put um, words in the mouth of any individual, libertarian or otherwise. But uh, if let us say this, if one is searching for a kind of libertarian golden age in American history, then there are two main candidates, the presidencies of Thomas Jefferson and of Andrew Jackson. And curiously, uh, uh, they, they both uh, were ruinous for the little man, the common uh, 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 American. Uh, in, in Jefferson's case, his disastrous embargo uh, on foreign trade, which wrecked the American economy in 1808, and in Jackson's case, his destruction of the Second United States Bank, which, after some initial corruption, had been reformed and established the United States dollar uh, as a reliable currency and medium of exchange, uh, serving the growth of a newly industrializing economy. Jackson hated the bank. He saw it as a concentration of power uh, and privilege uh, that only wealthy people could manipulate, and so he insisted on destroying the bank. Uh, and, and in so doing, all Jackson accomplished was to allow wildcat banks that were far less reliable and far more corrupt to spring up all over the country. 
and the harm he did, uh, the harm that did to the economy hurt who? It hurt. It hurt the the, the little guy uh, far more than it did uh, a person of wealth who could adjust to the new uh, the new realities. You say that no parallels are perfect, but you suggest that the American penchant for exporting democracy had some of its roots in the Civil War era. How did that play out? How did that come about? I wrote a previous book that um, many uh, here at Cato uh, know, uh, know, know quite well, Promised Land Crusader State. It, it's a uh, really an extended essay that describes the uh, the uh, eight, uh, as I saw it, eight American foreign policy traditions that had grown up over time and continued to influence Americans' attitudes toward uh, the uh, role of the United States in the world. The first four I called our Old Testament, and they dominated American policy in the 19th century. But then, beginning with the Spanish-American War in 1898, I argued that we had a kind of a New Testament of four more traditions, all of which were expansive and were attempts to, to radiate American power, values, and institutions around the world, in a sense to remake the world in our image to the degree that the, the, uh, uh, to, to the degree possible, uh, which would have been heresy to a John Quincy Adams or any 19th century statesman. And so 1898 was my big breaking point, and that's the usual breaking point in, your, in, in, in American diplomatic history, when America steps onto the world stage to play a, a, a world role. I, and I think that's still accurate. But I learned in, in this book that that the Spanish-American War and the occupations of the Philippines and, and Puerto Rico and Cuba and so forth were not, it turned out, obviously not, our first efforts in nation-building, in conquering a region and then trying to uh, bring about regime change uh, and to reconstruct a whole society along Yankee principles, if you will. Because, of course, that's, that's what the government tried to do in the ex-Confederacy after the Civil War. The federal government, Congress, and or the executive uh, uh, tried to reinvent the South uh, according to its own lights. And some of the efforts were very uh, uh, um, uh, very well-meaning uh, or would be affirmed by us today, other, other policies less so. But the bottom line, which everyone today would agree on, is that Reconstruction was a disastrous failure. Uh, it was a, it failed everybody. It failed the freed the freedmen, the the former enslaved people, most of all, obviously. But it also failed Southern poor whites, uh, because the South remained a backwater, uh, decrepit, poor region of the country uh, for almost a hundred years uh, after the end of the Civil War. And of course, the failure of Reconstruction institutionalized racism, uh, and not just in the South, because Northern states. Uh, could could point to Southern Jim Crow policies and use them as examples uh, in the North as well. That's another pretense. You see, we we like to pretend that this was a Southern problem when in fact it was a national one. So, uh, uh, looking back on it, you can say, well, gee, given the failure of Reconstruction, shouldn't Americans have been really scratching their heads over uh, over their ability? To remake whole societies and 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 try to uh, try to figure out how to do it better if they were going to try to do it again. But no, Americans aren't like that. They have very short memories, uh, and and very bold ambitions. And so somehow Americans decided that they could remake the Philippines, 
a Catholic Spanish uh, 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 archipelago of islands halfway around the world, uh, you know, somehow, when we couldn't even uh, uh, succeed in, 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 in states that had, were, were part of the Union itself. Walter A. McDougall won the Pulitzer Prize for History in 1986. He is a professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania. His new book is Throes of Democracy, the American Civil War Era, 1829 to 1877. This is the Cato Daily Podcast. You can subscribe to this and other podcasts at our website, cato.org.